Hello and welcome to a Phil's Fitech podcast, a series that offers up my various insights, concepts, and findings from years of experiences, mentorship, and exploration. The episode you're about to listen to is an interview I did with Ali Nasta for another show called Open Source Knowledge. That podcast is no longer active, but the information contained in this episode is very much still relevant, which is why I want to share it with you. Interestingly enough, it was open source knowledge that served as the jumping off point for developing this podcast. Furthermore, it's a great time capsule for me, and hopefully for you, of where my mind was at just over a year ago. The reason I've chosen to repost this episode is because it's a great companion piece to my latest lesson, which was on budgeting. The interview you're about to listen to goes much deeper into finances so you can explore the concepts I introduced in that lesson more meaningfully. I recommend you listen to that lesson first. It's the one called Let's Talk About Money and then return to this. But if not, well, I won't judge you or scold you. After all, you'll certainly learn something. So please enjoy. Hello, and welcome back to Open Source Knowledge. This is part two of episode one on personal finances. We dig deeper into this intimidating topic with Katerina Kozias, who spent 10 years in corporate finance. In this episode, Katerina gives us great tips on who we want to be friends with at the bank and how we can achieve the right money mindset. All that and more starting right now with Phil Spitek and Ali Nasta. First and foremost, Katarina, give us a little backstory, you know, as to why you're a good person to interview on finance. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thanks for having me. I love being here. And um, a little bit about my background, you know, give you uh, the 101 on why I listen to Katarina is uh, I was a business major, uh, finance, and spent almost 10 years in corporate finance, basically starting at a bank and then moving my way into a, an oil and gas company, but doing mergers and acquisitions for corporate finance, corporate strategy, all of that, before basically turning around at 29 and going, oh my God, where did 10 years of my life go? How am I doing finance? I hate finance. I'm quitting. And I moved into media. But I have kept up with finance as a consultant, so have many years kind of in the realm. I guess let's start off with the simple fact of what made you go, wow, I'm in finance. Right. Because, you know, for most people, there seems to be this negativity around the word finance or money or anything like that. And yet, it's the one sort of thing that we're all after. You know what? It's funny that you say that, Phil, because I'm going to start with just my rant on the whole education system in America. Um, So we put our kids through school, right? And they're in grade one, and they go to grade 12, and then we send them out into the world. And we send them into the world with no skills of any kind, right? They don't know how to be in a relationship. They don't know how to do their taxes. They don't know how to, um, you know certainly don't know how to invest in things or how to read what an interest rate on a car loan is about. So I just feel that, you know, finance has this scary connotation around it. And even for people that went into school to study finance, you still can come out of it four years after a degree going, I still don't know what's going on. Um, The thing we need to debunk is the fact that it doesn't have to be hard. It's just something that most people aren't familiar with. So you can, it's kind of like saying, like, let's say you could say, you know, playing the violin is hard. It's actually not hard if you know how to play it, 
right? But most of us don't walk around knowing how to play the violin. Most people don't know how to do their finances. So you could be super educated. You could be a cardiac surgeon. Awesome. Good for you. You're a heart doctor. Still doesn't mean you know how to do finance, right? So um, my biggest thing around that would just be don't be scared of it because it's learnable. Right, because it's almost like you're scared of the unknown. Right. Just as anybody is about any topic or about any anything. subject. Exactly. So you kind of have to, I think it's a mental mindset, you know, and because most people don't like numbers and finance has a lot of numbers, you just automatically like it even less. So what would you say would be the first thing to, to calm people down and calm their nerves and say it's really not that bad? Totally. So it's really not that bad because, like I just said, you can kind of learn it. But there's a few tricks and tips around keeping your personal finance together, finances together, around investing, around, you know, kind of changing your money mindset. And I think the first thing I'd say is just start being really aware of yourself, first of all. Because, yes, there's the stock market. Yes, you can go global. But start at home, right? What are you doing every day with your money? And if you're out there spending five bucks a day on Starbucks, do the math on that. Five times 30 days is 150 bucks. Okay, that's okay. I like my Starbucks, 150 bucks. Okay, times 12 months is $1,800. So you're spending $1,800 a year on something that you're literally gonna pee out an hour later. And you could be taking that money and investing it in a compound interest rate, which I'm gonna to totally talk about in a minute because it's so important that people get this, uh, but we're not doing that because we're giving it to Starbucks. So just take a minute and be like, what is my personal financial spending daily habits look like? That's a good place to start. So first and foremost, figuring out where your money goes. Right, yeah, where's your money going, exactly. I think something that has been very interesting and in kind of going along all this financial learnings yeah. is that it all starts with you and right. who you are as a person and kind of where your personal values lie. Right, yeah, and the thing is we all like money, we all like spending money, right? But the thing is there's something I like to call, not I don't call it, I didn't coin it, I wish I had, I'd trademark it, but um, money mindset, right? So we're, te we're teaching people save your money, okay? But the thing is when we tell people to save their money, that's coming from a scarcity mindset. Right, And I'm really, it's funny because for as much as I've been in hardcore finance, living on the West Coast, having moved to Hollywood, you know, I'm sitting here with you guys, there's this little like, woo-woo-ness on the West Coast, right? Of like spirituality, vibration, all this stuff. But there's a science to it. And like even Einstein has talked about the validity of frequency of all of that. So money, and think about this guys, because it really, really comes back down to the values and to the money mindset. Money is actually a high energy frequency. It's a happy frequency, okay? So money is supposed to be exchanged for value that benefits two parties. And when it is properly exchanged, everyone wins. So money is a super high flying frequency. There is no way you are gonna tap into money if you're vibrating low. So you look at it and you go, okay, there's the guy on his yacht smoking the cigar, and there's the guy in Compton on the ratty couch in the room with no windows. The guy in the room with no windows is probably miserable, bitching, and upset, and depressed. Money is never going to come into his world. He's got to vibe up, and when he does, then money's going to fly. And I'm not saying the guy on the yacht with the cigar is necessarily happy, but he's a heck of a lot happier than the guy on the ratty couch, right? So you've got to look at what's your money mindset. Now the thing that we do in society is we tell society, save your money. But by saying save your money, we're implying that you've got to save it because you're not going to have it. So we're automatically training people to move into a scarcity mindset rather than an abundant mindset. So one way you can get out of that is, yes, you have to save. It's prudent to save. 
but save in a way that is going to build abundance for you longer term. So I'm just going to keep ranting here because I'm on a roll. So keep listening, you guys. Super, super, super important, compound interest. Okay, what the heck is compound interest? None of us knows because none of us was ever taught this. What that means is your alley, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say you're 25 years old. The biggest mistake I see 25-year-olds making is prioritizing paying back their student loans instead of putting money into a 401k plan. The reason you need to prioritize putting money into a savings account that is gonna generate interest for you is because over time, compounding interest means that every year, every month, the interest is gonna make interest is gonna make interest. So I'm gonna just dumb this down for a minute, give you guys an example, because it's gonna blow your mind a little bit. So Ali's 25, let's say you've got a good job, you're making three, four grand a year, right? And you're like, I really wanna build up my retirement savings. I'm gonna put 500 bucks a month away. Now, 500 bucks on three grand is a lot, but you're like, no, I'm gonna do it. So 500 bucks a month. And you do that for 10 years. So Allie puts away between 25 and 35 years old, 500 bucks a month, and then you stop. Fast forward to when Allie's 65, so 30 years later, without even touching that money on an average of 7%, which is kind of roundabout number of interest that you can make, right? It's pretty safe, it's not high risk, it's not low risk, but it's pretty average. You're gonna turn around at 65 and have a nest egg worth about $700,000. Just off of putting $60,000 away at 500 bucks a month for 10 years. Now, let's say we've got Phil. So Phil's been busy between 25 and 35. Yeah, <laughs> Phil's, out pay, Phil's out buying Starbucks. No, <laughs> Phil's, so Phil's here and Phil's been prioritizing his student loans, right? He's trying to pay his money. He's been a good guy. He's trying to pay his money back. So he spends 25 to 35 years old, those 10 years, kind of getting financially set, buying his house, buying his car, paying off his debts. And he turns around at 35 and goes, oh shit, I haven't really started saving, but I'm only 35. So at 35, Phil starts putting in 500 bucks a month. Phil has to put in 500 bucks a month for 30 years. So between 35 and 65 years old, okay, 30 years worth. At that point, at his 65th year, he's gonna have only 650,000. So basically, Ali put in 500 bucks for 10 years a month, right? Phil has to put in 500 bucks for 30 years, and at the end of that, when they're both 65, she's gonna have $50,000 more than him just because of the 10-year acceleration that she had by starting early. It's crazy. So my point is, start early. And rewind that part, because I know the numbers kind of went whoosh. <laughs> I've seen, and I don't know what to call it, let's call it the middle point, right? Okay. They, 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 well, I, again, I don't know the correct term. Sure. But there is a point at which it doesn't make financially sense to put in more money because it doesn't really add anything to the pot, if you will. Right, yeah. Do you, can and you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so, so basically, and again, it comes down to starting earlier and allowing for time. Basically what you're wanting to do, and another thing when it comes to money, another energy you wanna play with is time. Again, anything you start earlier, the better for you, whether it's a skill set, whether it's saving money. Allie can be putting money in, and you're right, at a certain point, and you'd have to do the numbers because there's lots of variables. What's the interest rate? Um, did the economy crash? How much did it set her back? But there's a point where, yes, even if you keep adding into the pot, it's not gonna do a whole lot for you, okay? But that's gonna come, that probably would have hit for Allie if we were on this example at around 40, for her 40th year. So she would have had to do that between 25 and 40 to kind of reach that tipping point where it doesn't really make that much more sense for her to keep contributing. Phil, though, will probably never reach that point because he started so late. So start now, Phil. Got it. So to take advantage of 
compounding. Right. Like, what does that really yeah. mean? What, yeah. You, you take your money and you put it where? Yeah. So, so what do you do with your money, right? Okay. So one of the biggest things that I think um, deters people, as you said, is just they just don't know where to start, right? Where do you start? And even if you have five bucks, even if you have 500 bucks, and one of the things that I love about living in 2017 is, guess what? There's an app for everything. Like there's literally an app for everything. So one of the apps that I'm a super massive fan of is Stash Invest. Go to Stash Invest on you know your iPhone, download the app, and basically it links into your bank account, and whenever you feel like it, you can just redirect money into this, this app. The thing with the app is it sort of works in your favor because it bundles different investment opportunities. So you're starting out, you don't have a lot of money. People always say, don't put all your eggs in one basket, right? So you don't want to go and take all your money and put it into one stock because if that stock collapses, there goes everything. The thing with Stash Invest is it gives you opportunities to put your money into pre-itemized bundles. So let's say you're super, we're in California, we're talking about woo-woo. Let's say you're a vegan and you're a vegetarian and you love pita. And so they've actually got an investment called the green investment that has a bunch of stocks in there that are environmentally friendly. Wind power, solar power, that sort of thing. Let's say you're super entrepreneur and you want to just accelerate. They've got another bundle called the American investment. And that's got like Microsoft and Apple and Google and all of these stocks that are super high price that are playing at 60 or 80 or 100 bucks a stock. It's tough for somebody starting out to even get into that game. Whereas if you get through Stash Invest, they kind of bundle it for you and you can get started. So that's one of my favorite. I'm kind of learning too. Everybody has such different opinions about 401ks and stocks and investing and what's good, what's not. So I guess my question is how do you kind of sift through the commotion of the different opinions right. and, and how, how do you build your own ideal of what you should do? I mean, it's all different for each person. Right, right? absolutely. So two, two thoughts on that. Number one, Google is our best friend right? There is no excuse for anyone not to learn something because mm -hmm. they can do it while they're sitting on their couch in their pajamas. So if you want to learn something, just Google it, start training and educating yourself. If you don't really want to become a finance expert, and I get that, guess what? There are finance experts out there. And they're as easy as going to your local bank, right? Walk into a Wells Fargo, walk into a Bank of America, and say to them, I want to sit down with a financial advisor. If you're young, my advice would be because this is one thing that makes people nervous is I don't want to walk into a bank, I'm 25, I'm 26, I'm 30, I don't know anything about finance, I don't want to talk to some 60-year-old man. No, no, no. What you want to do is you want to walk into the bank and you want to find the financial advisor kid that is also 26, okay? So he graduated two years ago. This is his first job, but this is his passion. He loves this stuff. And what you want to do is you actually want to build a relationship with him. Okay, because again, in 2017, we're all hiding behind our phones. We forget that there's real human contact. So Phil goes into the bank, he meets Joe. Joe becomes his financial advisor. They kind of hit it off because they're about the same age. And Joe says to Phil, don't worry, man, I got your back. I'm gonna give you the heads up when stuff comes down the pipe. I'm gonna learn a little bit about your lifestyle, what you want to invest in. And these guys grow together after two years, after five years, after seven years. Guess what? After a little while, Joe becomes the VP of the bank and Phil's one of his buddies. Phil now has an element of trust with Joe and Joe's watching out for his back. Phil never has to become an expert. He just has to have a guy on his team that is a financial expert. So go into your bank, find out who's kind of new and they're going to love you because they want clients because they're just as scared as you because they don't they know that they've got a little self-confidence issue. They don't want to talk to the 60-year-old man coming into the bank because they're only 26. 
but they want to talk to you. So go make friends with your financial advisor at the bank. What are some questions you should ask them? Mm. So you go in and... Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you go in, you say, hey, Joe, what do you say, right? <laughs> the first thing you need to be aware of are what are your long-term goals? Do you want to retire with half a million dollars in the bank? Do you want to retire with $3 million in the bank? It's hard to say because that's 40 years out. How do you know? But you go in and you say, generally, I'd like to have a four-bedroom house, blah, 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 blah. They usually ask you what your vision is, and they type, they're, they're really savvy. They type a bunch of these things into the, you know, how much do you spend? How much do you want to spend on vacation? How much do you want to spend on Christmas presents? They actually have a real formulated system, and it'll spit out how much you should be investing every month. My advice as an individual would be just be a little bit savvy as to what's going on in the world. Because one thing about finance, it's totally locked into geopolitics. So what happens is when there's uncertainty in politics, uncertainty in general economics, stocks tend to fall. But what happens, what tends to rise are gold, silver, you know, those sorts of things, even commodities like natural gas and crude oil. So what you want to do is you want to make sure that you, as Phil or Ali or Katerina, are kind of aware of what's going on in the world. And when you see that, oh shit, you know, part of Barcelona wants to cut away from the rest of Spain, right? Be a little bit savvy as to what's going on in the world. Maybe you'll be like, hey, Joe, I know there's a little bit of unrest in Europe right now. What are we going to do? How are we going to position me? It's almost, there is a little bit of onus on you. We're not going to put it all on poor Joe. I have so many questions. And so many <laughs> it's fascinating. We love finance now. Have you heard of the Ray Dalio All Seasons Portfolio? Yes. Okay. So the Ray Dalio All Seasons Portfolio is, uh, first of all, Ray Dalio is a genius. For those of you who don't know who Ray Dalio is, um, you need to. So this guy is a financial master. He's one of the top hedge fund managers in the world. And basically what he's done is he's really developed a proven system of asset allocation in a way that never loses. So what Ray Dalio's done is he's got this thing he calls his all-weather portfolio, which basically goes a little bit back to my point about diversifying. Ray Dalio says, have a couple of different bonds, have some stocks, have some commodities, have some, you know, some gold. He's got five main pillars. And what he does is every so often he'll sort of fluctuate the percentages that he owns. Now the thing with Ray is he only plays with billionaires. To get him to manage your money, you need to come to the table with a minimum of $100 million. So most of us aren't gonna get to play at Ray Dalio's table, okay? But most of his asset allocation, the way he's splitting up these bundles, is available online. So all you need to do is observe him, right? And this goes back to almost anything in life. None of us needs to recreate the wheel. We just need to find someone who's done it, who can do it, and we just need to either get them to help mentor us or study them. And one of the things that I love about Ray is because he was so good, he got the attention of Tony Robbins. So Tony Robbins actually went around the world with his Money Master book interviewing the top money managers in the world and put it all into a book. If you guys haven't read this book and you're interested in finance, read Tony Robbins' Money Master. He gives you seven tips for successful financial you know, investing. Just take that and run with some of those. And even if you don't want to do the work, give it to Joe. What's really interesting too, it's that it seems like it's so difficult, but really it is just a matter of reading a book, reading something that has to do with finance and just kind of breaking it down and even to asking the simplest of questions. Because talking to you and talking to just even Phil and just kind of diving more into finance, I'm realizing that it's, it's really not as hard as you make it out to be in your mind. This might be a mindset thing. You know, like I, I've read Money Master the Game. Okay, yeah, um, amazing. 
amazing. Yeah. But then I walk away with so many questions, <laughs> and I don't know how to weigh the importance of the questions. Like, for for example, one of my questions is, well, when you're starting off, and let's say you only have a thousand dollars worth of assets, yeah. And they tell you to rebalance a portfolio right. once every six months, <laughs> once a year at least. Well, how do you rebalance a thousand dollar dollar portfolio, two thousand dollars? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So there's not a lot of assets there. And, and that's and that's the thing. And so what you need to do is first of all um, take a step back and recognize that you're starting out, right? And you're not gonna be there, but everyone has to start somewhere. If you go back to the beginning, which is whatever you have, start putting it into a portfolio where it's generating a little bit of compound interest. There's a little bit of investment. You can start to grow that slowly. One of the worst things people do is they try to get financial advice from their parents who probably know even less than them, or they try to get financial advice from their friends. So just really look at your sphere of influence. Who is in your life that is successful? Maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's some guy you see that's at Starbucks every day with his Maserati. Most people, especially older men, really feel the need to contribute. Most of them want to. So I would say, you know what, find someone who's in their 50s or 60s or even 70s that is successful and say to them, hey, do you mind if I sit with you once a month for two hours and you can just kind of mentor me, give me some tips. So a really cool tip that I would I would invite people to do, we all get feeds into our inbox, right? Whether you're, you know, whether your inbox is getting The Hollywood Reporter or Cosmopolitan or whatever, sign up for a couple of these money newsletters, money inboxes. Um, Bloomberg is awesome, and also MSNBC. You know, just go to their pages, sign up, and spend that first 10, 20 minutes in the morning when you're lying in bed, kind of scrolling through everything. But add a money newsletter, a money blog into your daily feed, and that'll just get you a little bit familiar with the language. And then once you get familiar with the language, that fear factor starts to diminish a little bit. I think kind of jumping off of what Phil had mentioned too, and not having any money to begin. Right. And <laughs> I think wondering, do you just, what do you, like, how do you even start putting your money in a compound interest savings account if you really don't even feel like you have that money to put away? Right. Do you secretly just forget that you even have that and then kind of still builds maybe debt somewhere else? How do you go about making that a tangible thing? Yeah, and, and that's the thing is you want to definitely look at where you can scrape a little bit of money to the side. Again, I really want to focus on starting early, but you want to take it from where you can get it. And, and again, I'm not saying don't go and blow it, but think about this. One of the worst things society has done is introduce the credit card. 80% of Americans, eight out of 10 people, is in debt. In 2017, Americans owe 12 point, I think it's 12.8 trillion dollars. It's crazy. And one of the reasons we're in debt is because, hey, this credit card thing was introduced about 30 years ago, right? So my advice would be, put yourself on a budget in the sense of only use cash. Now this sounds crazy to people because they're like, oh, what, I've got to build up my credit rating. Yes, you do because the system is geared towards not letting you move forward unless you have credit, right? The whole thing is rigged. Yeah. But start some credit, you know, get, get a credit card, but don't use it. Don't use your debit card. Take out cash, 400 bucks a week. Uh-huh. on a Monday morning. And if Saturday night comes around and you've only got 50 bucks left, guess what? You You're only using 50 bucks. Yeah. You're not going out and spending $600 on a bottle of vodka because you were in the mood and then waking up on Sunday going, oh shit, where did 600 bucks go? Right. And that's okay because I've got $6,000 left on my card. So one way to really track what you're spending in order to save a little bit, in order to invest a little bit, is 
try to discipline yourself and try a cash play for about three months. Mm. Only take out X amount on a Monday morning and work with that. It's oh, a miracle. Let's do it. See what happens. I can imagine it because um, I mean I, I'll admit I've, I've been there where I can spend forty dollars <laughs> on, on a debit card, but you know try to ask me for five bucks in cash, and I'm like, are you for real? Right. You see? Yeah. <laughs> so no way. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's so true. And the thing is, guys, with anything, right? Any achievement in life, there's discipline, mm -hmm. right? Whether you're a, a, an athlete, whether you're um, a musician. It's discipline. So if you want to be financially secure later in life, mm -hmm. you have to be disciplined with your money now. This kind of takes us off tangent, and I promise we'll steer it back, but you talked a lot about mindset mm. and this high energy. Mm -hmm. I did recently went to a conference in D.C., and they all they did was talk about millennials and Gen Z. Uh -huh. And this idea that millennials and Gen Z have no money whatsoever. <laughs> but yet, they found a way to essentially trade goods. Ah, uh -huh. And so, kind of thought that was interesting because it, it goes along with the high energy, right? And especially totally. when you talk about the value, when it has equal value for you and me and we exchange it, then we're both happy. So... In that sense, I thought that was a, a sort of a good generation, generational thing because yeah. at least we're finding new avenues without the money. And it's so true. And the thing is, you guys, you got to remember, right? The reason we want money is because we think it's going to make us happy. Mm -hmm. So if you're being made happy because you need a couch and the guy's got a couch and you need somewhere to sleep and he's got somewhere for you to sleep, guess what? You're happy in that moment. It's really crazy because Gen Xers, the latter, like the, the younger Gen Xers, but into the millennials is the first generation in the history history of all of mankind that is expected to do less well financially than their parents. I read a study back in 2015 and they looked at 30 year olds in 2015 and they compared their wealth acquisition to 30 to their 30 year old parent generation. So back in like the late 70s, let's say. The 30 year olds in 2015 on average had 12 to 18% less wealth accumulated than their parents had had at that same age because we're being hit by the 2008 recession. Some of those people even were early enough in their careers that they felt the 2001 tech bubble burst. And so, you know, with millennials now, we don't know that something's going to collapse in 2019, right? And so we can't rely on this system to support us with like the security, this perceived security that our parents bought into because things shift. So if you can find ways as a generation, you know, um, I'm coming from my like hoity-toity Gen X-ness here, but you know, if, the, if millennials can find a way to trade and barter and create, then I think that's gonna move all of us into a happier place. Um, I think it's great. What do, you, what do you think about the notion that basically stocks or um, any sort of investment, every I forget the stat, but let's say every five years, yeah. there's a dip. Correct, yeah. So just letting that be part and parcel of the course. Yeah. Rather it, than just be, oh my God, we're in a recession, we're in this. It's just natural. You know, when we think about investing, um, stocks, yeah, you know, this one's tough because I lost my shirt, really lost my shirt in 2008. Um, I had put everything into high-risk stuff in my 20s. I was making good cash, right? So I was investing and I was like, oh, I'm only 26, I got tons of time, everything was at high risk overseas, uh, little buckets. And then it collapsed and I was like, oh my God. Um, and it's taken me almost six years, it took almost six years for me to go from super high to super negative to flat, okay? Um, stocks do that, so stocks are considered a riskier investment. Um, something that's less risky are bonds. But again, when you start playing with bonds, you start getting financially, you know, it gets all technical. So one of my favorite 
things to invest in, and we haven't touched on this yet, but I really want to, is real estate, which again is tough when you have no money, right? How do you, how do you invest in real estate of all things if you can't even invest in stocks? But I would really caution you again in your 20s, if you're renting, put your ego aside and rent something that's cheap because renting is like burning money in the wind. No, really, it's like take no, a lighter, take a dollar, take a lighter, and that's what you're doing when you're renting. So if you need to team up with three people to cut the costs, if you need to live in a little hovel for a few years, save as much money as you can and buy something. The only thing that saved me in my 30s because everything on the equity side collapsed was the real estate that I had bought in my late 20s. I bought a couple in my house and then I was lucky enough I bought a second house. Um, but that sustained itself. And the nice thing about real estate is for the most part, unless you're in the business of flipping, which is a whole other category, right. you just put it in there and you it'll naturally increase relatively lower risk. And you can turn around in 10 or 20 years and go, oh, well, that's increased in value by a hundred or three hundred or six hundred thousand dollars. So, if you're worried about risk, maybe try and save your money and put it into real estate versus equity, high equity. And so, with real estate, you're saying when you buy these houses, you're definitely renting them out at the same time, right? So you can make money back while you're paying it off. Yeah, I mean, ideally, twofold on real estate. One, naturally, over the course of time, house prices normally do go up, you know, so you'll gain that appreciation. But number two, yeah, if you can afford to live somewhere else and rent it out, then you've got someone else paying your mortgage, which is amazing. Of course. Right? So someone else is paying your mortgage and you're turning around, kind of pocketing whatever change is left over. The thing with investing in real estate, too, though, that you've got to remember is everyone wants to be in the cool part of town right? So you're in your city and you're moving out and you want to be downtown, you want to be on the river, you want to be in the cool spot. That's expensive. You know, what you do is you buy 15 minutes on the outskirts of town and you leave it there. And especially, we're in LA right now, so LA is so bloody expensive, right? It's tough to, to do anything in this city. You can't even, like, buying a house. No, it's, just it's crazy. But I mean, let's say you're listening to this and you live in Arkansas, right? You can literally go buy a cute little house for thirty or $40,000 on the outskirts of town. Okay, yeah, you may not have that today, but you might have it in five years. Mm -hmm. That thirty or $40,000 little house in 15 years on the outskirts of Arkansas, when Arkansas grows and this big land developer wants to take it over because he's building a condo complex or, you know, a huge resort, that's going to be worth $700,000, you know? So you went from your $30,000 investment to $700,000 because you bought 20 minutes out of town instead of buying in the little hot spot where the bars are around. Mm -hmm. So just be smart about it, you know? This is like totally jumping off topic a little bit. Taxes. Oh God, taxes. I know, taxes <laughs> and even I guess maybe a little bit of 401ks because you had mentioned it a lot and I think it's just the big question of do you, is it necessary to be a part of it if your company has it? Do you, is, it is that a personal opinion type of thing? Right, Some, well that depends, right? Some companies make it mandatory mm -hmm. um, that you have to opt into a 401k plan. And the companies that make it mandatory usually have a company profit sharing plan. So for example, if you're putting in $2,000 a month, uh, or let's say $2,000 a year into the 401k, they might match it by 50%. So you put in 2,000, they put in 1,000, all of a sudden you're getting 3,000. If you have a company that's offering that, absolutely take okay. it. Because what happens is if you don't put it into one of those plans 
um, you end up spending it. Yeah. We just do, guys. We just do. That's you're gonna true. you're gonna go on a vacation you can't afford, or you're gonna buy some new gadget for your car. Right. And it's like, no, you really do want to put it away. Now, the thing is, you have to be a little bit careful, though, right? Because all these people in 2000 and 2005 and 2006 and 2007 that were putting money into 401ks when 2008 came, they lost hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars. See, this is tough too because again, the system is rigged so that people with money keep making money, right? Corporations, if you incorporate yourself, if you're an entrepreneur and you incorporate yourself, you're gonna get a heck of a better tax uh, incentive tax rate than the regular person who's working a job. So if you can, work for yourself. I'm a huge proponent of that. I'm not saying start right away. You don't want to start, most of us don't want to start when we're 20. Um, let's be honest, there's few and far between Zuckerbergs. But you can start when you're 35 if you've taken 20 to 20, 20 to 35 and learned from someone else. Mm -hmm. um, and I even see it, you know, for people in my generation, um, in your 40s is the best time to start your own business because you have 20 years experience. What you can do at that point is you can shift from a higher tax rate into a lower tax rate mm -hmm. that's going to be beneficial for you. But that goes it's spinning into entrepreneurship right. versus financial stuff. I think this might be a totally ignorant question and I'm sending my apologies right now. <laughs> but I don't know why whenever I fill out, I filled out like a new tax form for a job, I get so confused about the exemptions. Mm. Why I don't know why it confuses is me, but I think I was told when I was younger you should claim more exemptions, and then I was also told you should not claim any. So I'm just confused. I want clarity on right. which one do I do? Do I claim a lot or do I claim zero? I think that comes down to the question that you're going to ask Joe when you go visit him at the bank, because it depends on what kind of lifestyle you want. Um, a lot of times it's a matter of do you want more cash now? Mm -hmm. or do you want more cash deferred until later? And it depends for everyone, because maybe you're getting married and you want to buy a house and you want that cash right now. You don't want the cash in 30 years, right? So you can, you can opt in for some of the exemptions, which means you're going to be putting less money away. But again, we don't need to know the answers to these. We can find people that have the answers. Right. Um, a good place to go to is your HR department. If you happen to be working in corporate, they absolutely know. Or even, you know, go to your local tax guy down the street. And is it going to cost you? Yeah, it might cost you 100 bucks for some advice to get his advice for an hour. But wouldn't you rather pay 100 bucks to him and have the right advice right. rather than be struggling in the dark going, I don't even know what this means? Right. So yeah, I mean, it goes all the way back to Dale Carnegie, right? Back in the 1800s. It's like, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you, mm -hmm. that know the answers. You don't have to know everything. Just know who knows. How should you look at tax efficiency, especially like mm. California? Oh. All three of us looking at it, it's the worst. Oh my gosh. So. Uh, and yet we're here. How yeah. does that play into your lifestyle? Because mm. obviously all three of us, given what we do, we're not going to leave California, right. at least in the moment. What viewpoint should you attack? Absolutely. So so the, the thing is, you know, you've got to look at, everyone has, again, this negative connotation about taxes, right? Taxes are bad, taxes are evil. The thing is, taxes are put in place so that social systems are put in place so that you have the niceties that you have. California has great infrastructure in terms of, you know, roadways. California has really good hospitals in general. Um, a lot of these things are privatized, but a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are public services. I had a heart attack the other day because I hadn't realized that the tax at the till oh my in gosh. California. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. it's like, really oh, not a real heart attack. Like, oh my gosh, are you okay? How are you here? <laughs> Sorry, 
I my heart yeah. just stopped for a second. So. I am alive though. Here, feel my pulse. Oh my gosh. I'm alive. <laughs> oh I know. <laughs> no, oh but God. I had a heart attack. I was at a, like a like a checkout counter thing. And I hadn't realized the tax here is 9.5%. Yeah. Like that's almost 10%. That's insane, you know. Um, and gas is one of the highest prices in the country, you know. So we're, we're really hit with it. But tax is something you can't really get around unless you decide that you're going to move from being a regular person into being an entrepreneur and incorporating yourself or your company, you're going to get stuck in the tax loop. You know, the only other alternative is to move to somewhere like Delaware, which is low on tax. Well, uh, I don't know if this is true, but Washington, um, mm. they don't do, they do an income tax, but not a sales tax. They might. Yeah. 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 Which I um, think is interesting. Yeah. I don't know no. If that's good or not. But <laughs> it's interesting. Maybe move to Washington, right? Yeah. yeah. I think tax is something that we're never, ever, ever going to get away from. But I think, to Ali's point, if you're filling out tax forms, if you're filling out stuff with, for a new job, just be really clear on what you're signing off on. Um, you know, and again, check your ego at the door, right? Mm -hmm. Be the guy that says, I don't understand what this is saying, rather than trying to seem like, no, no, I'm cool. Mm -hmm. And going, oh shit, did I just sign the farm away, you know? I think I literally just, every time I see one of those forms, <laughs> I feel like an idiot. You have a heart attack. It's the same form I've probably gotten. Like, I was, I did retail all throughout high school, you know? Like, I've seen that form so many times. Yeah. But it intimidates me every time I get it in my package. I'm like, no! Well, the funny thing is, the thing that intimidates me is the question about address. Because I'm like, I've changed addresses like seven oh, times in the last yeah. three years. And it always has, like, what's your address? So I'm not even worried about the tax. I'm worried about like where do I live? Yeah. Uh, that's funny. You mentioned influences and you also mentioned being able to study people. Who are some of your influences? Who are some of your the people that you study, whether directly interacting with or just books? Sure. Otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. Um, number one resource, um, absolutely, especially these days, especially for anyone living in a big city like we are, who's always in the car, always in traffic, podcast. Guys, you know, turn the radio off, turn the music off, stop talking to your friend on the phone. I mean, no one talks on the phone anymore, but um, there's some awesome podcasts. Um, one that I really love, if you're a girl, because, you know, if fem females are even more scared of finance than men, there's a cool podcast called Money Girl. I mean, that's what I was listening to. Yeah, it's okay, awesome, yeah. though. Isn't it good? It's yeah. so good, and she takes questions that She's people so will great. call in and it, like, it's questions It's just regular person asking. stuff. Right. Yeah, so Money Girl's awesome. Even if you're a guy, listen to Money Girl. She's cool. Um, another one is called Mind Your Business Podcast. So it's kind of like Mind Your Own Business, but it's Mind Your Business Podcast, and it gives you a lot of like tips on finance. But another one, yeah, massively is books. So one that I really love is um, The Millionaire Mind by um, T. Harv Ecker. At Millionaire Mind or Millionaire Mindset. But again, kind of taking it even away from the tactical and playing into the money mindset, right? If you were born thinking, you know, oh, anyone that asks for anything is asking too much, you should be happy with what you have, you're never going to make money. So you've got to kind of go into the subconscious first. So yeah, T. Harvecker is definitely one if you're looking for money mindset. Also, um, Dan Graziosi has a new book that's trending right now. It's called Millionaire Success Habits. And I think it's rising on number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, so yeah, Millionaire, Minds, Millionaire Success Habits by Dan Graziosi. But the thing is, it's not, you know what the thing is, it's, and it's awesome, and I love books. Mm -hmm. Like YouTube is so free. Mm -hmm. And again, you can sit there on your couch in your underwear and just learn mm -hmm. and watch people who teach you, and it's just fun. So there's no excuse, guys, for us not learning new stuff now. We live in a wonderful age. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience while you have the moment? Yes. So I really just want to underscore that 
you know, don't think that you have so much time because it goes by really fast. So don't underestimate the value of having a financial plan in place for yourself. And I'm not saying take money out of your fund in order to save it, but I am saying be a little bit aware of what's your money blueprint starting to look like. You know, and it's like when you think of building a house, you have to have a bit of a blueprint before you can start building the foundation. So just try to understand what you want out of life. What cars do you want? What houses do you want? What kind of vacations do you want? What is an actual tangible dollar value around that? Because we can all say, hey, we love money. Yeah, I want to be rich. What does rich mean to you? Is rich $300,000? Is rich $3 million? If you want jets and yachts, I'm telling you rich is 30 million plus. What is it going to take for you to have 30 million bucks, you know? And we don't need to have that. But, I mean, we all want to at least have enough money to buy our mom a birthday card. So identify what your personal financial goals are and then seek out the people that know more than you. Yeah, number one advice. It takes the stress off. Here's the chicken or the egg question. Mm. Um, how much of finance is actually strategic versus mental? Oh, my God. Yeah, so if you had asked me this question five years ago, I would have been like, 90% of it's actual tangible stuff. You need to go and learn and, and get and study budgets and spreadsheets. And I have so reversed that. Um, I've been delving super deep the last couple of years into personal development, personal potential, you know, transformation. And the mindset and your own subconscious beliefs are so critical in whether or not you're going to be successful in life. It actually doesn't even have anything to do with your financial plan. The financial plan is awesome, and I just talked about the importance of it, but you need to figure out where is your money mindset, what is under the surface that's either helping you or not, and once you get clear on that, then sky's the limit. So, yeah, I'd say 80-20 towards the woo-woo. Any last questions for you, Allie? No, I think this this is like, it's so interesting every time we get more and more information, even if it's stuff that I already knew, but I just needed to sit there and just listen again and get more in-depth on yeah. it. So, like, thank you so much yeah. for Ab- coming in and t- chatting with us. This has been so much Yay. fun. And one more thing I'm going to say real quick about Starbucks. Yes. I love Starbucks. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, again, at Starbucks, any Starbucks, you can save the five bucks and you can save the calories on your ass. So, no, really, like, you've got to just cut it down a little bit, people. Put a little bit of that coffee money aside. I yeah. promise you, it'll help. And where can people sort of follow your work? And uh, Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, no, absolutely. So um, I would love, love, love for you guys to follow me. My favorite is Instagram. Um, Twitter and Instagram, my handle's the same. So it's just my name, Katerina Kazayas. You know, that's going to be probably on our... On, on the screen somewhere, which is awesome because I love technology and we're living in a virtual world. So at Katerina Kazayas, um, I'd love for you to follow me. And, uh, and I delve into a whole bunch of stuff, finance-related, money mindset-related, media-related. Um, and, yeah, reach out to me if you've got finance questions because now that I'm old and uh, a little bit wise and I've been burned a couple of times, I can tell you what not to do. Thank you very much. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was Phil and I's interview with Katerina Kozayas. This was part two in our final episode to close out our exploration into the world of personal finance. If you have any questions or ideas for future topics, please tweet us at Ellie Masta and at Phil Speedtech using the hashtag OSK. Also, provided for you in the description box are various resources that Phil and I used when doing our research on personal finance. 
Thanks for joining us on another episode of Open Source Knowledge. Don't forget to subscribe and check out our Facebook page for updates in between episodes. We can't wait for you to join us on our next topic, diving into the depths of psychology.